Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux, and I am freshly home from the Nashville Rock and Pod Expo. It was an absolute blast. I was honored to be there. I loved seeing everybody. I really loved hosting the songwriting panel, and I hope I get a recording of that out to you guys soon. But uh, I hope they do this next year and that I'm able to go because it was a total blast. Class outfit from start to finish. Now, this week, speaking of class, this week we're talking to the legend, legendary songwriter, Russ Ballard. Now, the guy has written so many hits and so many huge songs. Some of the obvious ones are like the ones you're listening to right here. This is God Gave Rock and Roll to You, uh, which Kiss did a version of uh, in the 90s. He wrote... You know, New York Groove that Ace had a big hit with. He wrote hits for America, for Frida, for uh, Argent, which is a band he was in in the late 60s that really sort of catapulted him to greater stardom than he had been having before that. He had some big hits with other bands in the early 60s. We talk about that. But eventually he went out on his own and he's had a, a solid uh, solo career for a while. But what's really interesting, though, is that he, people, uh, people were having a lot more success with his songs than he was. It seems like because so many hits are in his name that he would have written them for the artist. That's not always true. In fact, that's only happened a couple of times. Most of the time, it's people having a huge hit with a song that he did first. So it's essentially a cover. So we talk about how he feels about that. I mean, truthfully, I mean, if you were making bank off people out there in the world having hits off your songs and you could just stay home and raise your kids and work in the garden and walk to the grocery store, that, that's not a bad life. And that's really what Russ has been enjoying. And he's earned it. He's one of the greatest songwriters of all time. So we talk about that. We talk about the ups and downs of his solo career. Um, he's got a lot of great advice, really genius advice for Roger Daltrey, which I think is kind of fascinating. He comes up with an idea here about really where Roger should be going from here. And it's genius. It makes perfect sense. We also crack the code on what makes a hit song. And yeah, you're Russ Ballard, of course, and me, your humble host, we figured it out. So now you know. Anyway, this was a really great conversation. So many songs that maybe you knew he wrote, maybe you didn't. I have a feeling you're gonna be shocked that all of this great stuff came from the same guy. He was a good man. We talked from his home in England. So for starters, you know, I don't always want to go back into the early, early days because that stuff's all readily available on Wikipedia if people wanted to find it. But I am curious why you, in particular, got plucked to eventually join Argent. How did that happen? It's a strange thing, actually, because at that time, around about that time, uh, that was a long time ago, actually, I was in a band. I played on the record. I played on, do you remember a band called Unit 4 Plus 2? No, uh-uh. We had a big song. In fact, there were two versions of this one song in the American charts. Uh, one was by Unit 4 Plus 2. You might remember it because it went, uh, My feet begins to crumble, but love will never die Because we'll see Ooh. the mountains tumble before we say goodbye, my love and That I. sounds familiar, yes. 
We'll be in love eternally. Yeah, that was yeah. that was that That's was Unit Four Plus clear. Two. I I play guitar on that. They were called Unit oh, Four okay. Plus Two. You to me are sweet as roses in the morning, and you to me are soft as summer rain that don't in love with shade. That's something rare. The sidewalks in the street, the concrete and the clay beneath my feet begins to crumble. But love will never die Because we'll see the mountains tumble Before we say goodbye My love and I will be in love eternally That's the way, that's the way it's meant to be All around, I see the purple shades of evening And on the ground, shadows fall And once again, you're in my arms So tenderly Sidewalks in the street, the concrete and the clay beneath my feet begins to crumble. But love will never die because we'll see the mountains crumble before we say goodbye. My love and I will be in love eternally. And that's the way. Uh, Bob Henry and my, myself were the plus two in the band, basically. <laughs> you see, they had a deal in the in. Uh, in England, with uh, in the UK, with Decca, and they'd made a couple of singles. They were just called the Unit Four. They were brilliant guys. I mean, and uh, we were close to all of them because the, you know we went to school with it all together basically. And uh, they got this deal, and they were really, really good. Not so much musicians, but they were a really good uh, harmony band. A little bit like, as you'd say, the Beach Boys or the Fre- Four Freshmen, okay. and those those kind of bands. Sure. Great yeah. harmonies and things. And Brian Parker, who started the band, who wasn't in the band at the time, but he started the band, wrote that song, Concrete and Clay, with Tommy Moeller, who was a good friend mm-hmm. of mine too. And, uh, mm-hmm. of course, because they were four-piece and they played guitars and sang acoustic guitars, they didn't have any, uh, you know, when it came to making a, 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 tra- uh, a record, they needed a, a guitar player and they needed a drummer. And they asked us if we would do it, uh, Bob Henry who was in Argent with me, uh, and, and we both did it. We did that song. I heard the song when they were re- rehearsing it. I heard it when they were rehearsing it. I thought it was such an amazing tune, you know. And um, yeah. But it, the chords change really in strange strange places. So uh-huh. when we came to record it, I think it was like the first or second take, I was still trying to learn the track when we were, <laughs> when we were recording it. And when uh-huh. I thought I thought the guitar solo was terrible, but um, everyone they kept it, and they said, "No, it's great, it's great." That became a big hit uh, in the states. It was number one here. Uh, it, was, okay. it was a big hit in the states, and there was another version in the top twenty, top thirty by Eddie Rambo. Shadows falling once again. 
Eddie Rambo, you should look that up. Yeah, I mean they I were will. both in there. They were both in there. Yeah. So I was playing in that band. We decided to go on on the road with them. They had the hit in 1965. In 1968, Bob Henry and I we left the band that we were in at the time. We left together, and uh, uh, the guys knew that we, you know, we'd left uh, and we weren't doing anything at the time. They said, "Why don't you join us?" And they threw out their they threw out their guitar player and their drummer. And they put Bob, I mean, Bob Henry and I go back to when we were kids, so we were always friends, you know. So we um, yeah. we became the, uh, the, the the plus two in that band. And we went on the road. We were playing in a little hall in Essex from where I am now. It's probably about an hour away. We were playing on a Saturday night. And who should walk in to the dressing room? We were doing two sets. Who should walk in? Rod Arge and, and Chris White from The Zombies. <laughs> who, I, who I knew really well because we were, you know, uh, they were in St Albans, which was only 45 uh, half an hour away from here, and uh-huh. we used to see them a lot. So what are you doing here? And Rod said, Oh, we were just actually we were passing through, and we saw, the, you know, the band were playing here, so we came in. Yeah. When in fact, they came in basically to look at Bob and myself uh, to be really? an arch. I wondered. <laughs> you know, that was I had no idea yeah. until Rod phoned yeah, me. That was on the Saturday, and Rod phoned me on the Monday, because I was wondering if, you, you know, I'm going to start a band, you know, but I spit the yeah. zombies uh, all, all that time ago. And I'd always admired, uh, you know, uh, Rod's musicianship, because he's a very, very talented, obviously, a very talented musician, and a great songwriter, you know. I, I mean, everyone was aware of She's Not There, and he wrote that when he was 17, you know, and, I mean, amazing, Goodness. amazing... I was saying to somebody the other day that uh, she's not there was the really the for me it was the first kind of progressive rock song. Well, no one told me about her, the way she lied. Well, no one told me about her, how many people cried. But it's too late to say you're sorry. How would I know? Why should I care? Please don't bother trying to find her. She's not there. Well, let me tell you about the way she looked, the way she acted, the color of her hair. Her voice was soft and cool, her eyes were clear and bright, but she's not told me about her what could I do and you had the doors and things they came later but that was 1964 you know and that, that thing well no one told me about it's such a fantastic sound you know at the time it is you know you had twist and shout and you had all those kind of songs you know but then suddenly you had this really sophisticated and written by a 17-year-old, you know, so... Um, That's amazing. You know, when Rod said, you know, we'd love to be in the band, and uh, that was it, you know, basically, and... Uh, 
let me rehearse the year. <laughs> Spent uh-huh. all the time for a year rehearsing. And then going to Germany, we you know we went to Germany to get the band together. We played in the club. We went to to uh, Munich and played in the club okay. for for two weeks. Yeah. Let me ask you. Let me ask you kind of a I don't know specific question about that period. So, you know, a young struggling musician. I, I don't know that you're struggling, but you're you haven't you're not you know a household name or anything quite yet. And you've got to take a year off uh, to become a member of Argent and practice and all that kind of stuff. How do you pay your bills during that year? Are you living off of royalties from unit four plus two because they just had a hit and that's going to take care of you for a while? Or are you getting a regular job? How does this work logistically? You know, I had an amazing mum and dad, you know, that because Rod, ah, there you go. <laughs> Rod, had, Rod had made money from songwriting. It had a couple of hits in the States. It had, uh, she's not there. And then, um, Tell her no. I think the follow-up. He'd had yeah. these. Uh, I mean, everyone had minis, mini cars here. You know, Rod had an Aston Martin. Okay. You know, he was driving around in an Aston. You know, and uh, we were rehearsing, and he was financing the band. So okay. I mean, I mean, Jim, Jim was married with uh, a son, so he had to obviously have his expenses paid. I'd never got paid because I never even thought about it. You know, um, really. I never thought about it. I never got paid. I, I, you know, used to pay the guys and I used to pay them every uh-huh. week and stuff. What I'd done is I'd always played like in, in semi-pro bands and we used to work okay. a lot as semi-pro. That's with Bob as well, um, with Bob uh-huh. Henry. We used to play in semi-pro bands and we'd always work at the weekend. And I put okay. this money away and uh, it was cash, you know, usually. And um, sure. I bought a lease to a shop when I was 21 and my dad said, you know, you ought to sort of, uh, you ought to buy a lease and, and let it out, you know. And I did that, and I did that for, I, I guess it doesn't sound like a lot now, but it's £5,000, and I put it down uh, on a lease that lasted for five years. It turned into a, chi- a Chinese restaurant, but I received money from that for five years, you know, so... Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, so you're a savvy guy back in, even early on. Well, you, uh, uh, in fact, it, it, in fact, it was my dad's. It was my dad's uh, expertise. You know what I mean? Well, pointed you in the right direction. That's yeah, great. yeah. Okay, yeah. I was just curious. You know, when a young struggling band is yeah, but you know, I, I, I never, I never, I never gave my mother and father any housekeeping. I never gave them any money for food. They just, you know, they were no. great. They were just fantastic. You know, just fantastic yeah. mum and dad. You know. Good. Good. Okay. <laughs> so Argent comes together, and um, you know, you guys have. You're together about four years. I think you're in there about four years, and you manage one hit, Hold Your Head Up, and it's a yeah. great song. plan all along for you, you know, famously you eventually decide I'm going to go solo and be a songwriter. Did 
the hold your head up success, is that what sort of fueled you or felt made you feel powerful enough to be able to do that? Like, I, I like this feeling, I'm going to move over here. Or was there drama within Arjun that you weren't happy with? What was sort of what led you to make that decision? It was actually a mixture of the, all those things you're talking about. Oh, really? Um, yeah, because on the first Argent album, I I wrote a song on the very first uh, album called Liar, which was like a blues kind of tune. Great song. And luckily enough, Three Dog Night recorded that, and that was, uh, you know, they got a lot of airplay, so I made quite a lot of money from that song. money from hold your head up in that album and um there was that so that enabled me that certainly fueled my aspiration of being a, a songwriter you know and i'd already written one one song when i was 14 i wrote an instrumental for a band in england called the shadows That was before that was before the Beatles. I wrote that when I was fourteen, and the very first time I went into a studio at Regent Sound, uh, where the Stones made their first album, I went into that studio with my brother, with Bob Henry, and a couple of other guys, and put down this instrumental. And believe it or not, the Shadows recorded this tune, you know. And of course, that gave me a lot of uh, adrenaline, you know. And it gave me some money, and Three Dog Night gave me some money. Um, there were a few things I was frustrated about. Uh, with Argent is that I thought we were going to be more like a kind of a more what can I say a, when I was talking about progressive I said that uh, she's not there was the first progressive the first progressive I thought we were going to do more things like that which w were more direct we ended up being very I like the heaviness we were pretty heavy live 
we were pretty heavy live, but but um, there were so many long improvised organ solos, and they got very jazzy and very a long way from what I wanted to do. Um, yeah. Were so you more that, pop minded? You wanted like no, no, it wasn't so much song? pop. I was song minded. It wasn't so much pop. Okay. I liked pro- the idea of progressive pop, which I thought um, she's not there was progressive yeah. pop you know i would say that yeah. a lot of uh carol king and that kind of stuff when you know it, it's too late and those kind of tunes or yeah. the doors and stuff that was what i call the progressive pop but um okay every song that we did live had a long improvised organ solo or a keyboard solo you know and um i was yeah. a pretty good guitar player but i felt i felt that i i don't know i felt a little bit as though I shouldn't stretch out too much on solos because I was sort of I was doing most of most of the uh, lead singing and stuff and Rod was doing his thing and also at the time you know my wife had a baby and uh, you know I hated being away from I wanted to see the kids grow up you know yeah and that's and luckily life I've said before that someone up there likes me because uh, (laughs) you know I I was able to survive and you know I was having um People record my songs and stuff, and it gave me enough, uh, obviously, enough finance to uh, to come off yeah. the road and sit at home, watch the kids develop, and um, you know, take my kids to football and stuff, and and all that stuff. It yeah. was brilliant. There was that. I the one thing I've missed, strange enough, is playing live. I've missed that. I mean, it's one thing, but you have to. Uh, really, I've missed it. Yeah, big time. I always missed it because I spent years before Argent playing live. You know. Do you play live now? I mean, I don't know if you go... You had a long solo career as well. So do you go out once in a while? No, yeah, but... England I've, and... Do you know, John, strangely enough, last year, I was asked if I would do, if I would like to do a tour in England. And it's the first tour I've ever done in England since I left Argent. It's 40 years. Really? Mm. That whole time you were making solo albums, you did not tour? Never toured. Wow. I toured in... Why? I, I toured. I toured in Germany uh, because because okay. the albums uh, the albums did well in Europe. They did very well. Strange enough, they did well in in Germany. Did well in Italy, in Spain, and I've done some gigs in. Uh, strange enough, I went to. It's only. It's the day Michael Jackson died. I oh, did a concert. Wow. I did a concert in Portugal, not knowing you know, not knowing that my albums had done well there. You know, turn up and there's four and a half thousand wow. people singing the songs. No way. All singing every wow. chorus to every song, you know, and I thought, That's wow, amazing. you know, they know these yeah. tunes as well. And so, I mean, I've done quite a bit of that. I toured the States in 1985, because I remember I left Argent in 74. I toured the state. I toured the States in 76. I did the Bottom Line in New York. I did the Roxy in okay. L.A. I did a place in um, Chicago. Ratsos, I think it was called. A place in um, Washington uh, for a few days. I did a couple of shows in in San Francisco, and that was it. And that's all I'd done. But Roger Daltrey asked me if I would uh, play guitar on his first solo tour. So in '85, I did a tour of the East Coast with Roger playing the guitar and he said do your own, do a couple of your own songs as well. So I did a couple of my own songs, and he banged a tambourine, and that was nice. So I've been, I've been doing, I've been doing things in England. But I've been doing the Teenage Cancer Trust with Roger, fun enough, because he's been heading this uh, uh, charity that uh, raises money for basically for children's units uh, for 
children have cancer. It's called yeah. the Teenage Cancer Trust. So, you know, usually children have to go in with adults and stuff. Now, now he's raised a hell of a lot of money to put, uh, you know, units, children's units into hospitals with kids who've got cancer. So we've done that for, I've done it for 10 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, so uh, it, was a, for it, was, you. it was a good band. Uh, it was Richard Desmond on the drums. It was Greg Lake on the, Greg Lake played bass. He's sadly, no, he's no longer with us. Um, yeah. I play guitar. Uh, Simon... Um, Simon Townsend played the other guitar. Townsend. We've had okay. Gary Brooker, Gary Brooker on keyboard. All sorts of people have turned okay. up. Uh, we've had uh, Robert Plant turning up and, and just guesting, and that's been pretty good. Yeah. Um, uh, we've had all sorts of people turn up and guesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, good for you. You know, you saying this, I'm wondering. You know, for as for as iconic a songwriter as you are. Keep in mind, I'm keeping. I'm, this is strictly from an American perspective. All I yeah, know yeah, sure. Yeah. States. For what an iconic songwriter you are, your solo career, I would say, has been more culty. You know. not like your solo albums were in the states anyway like burning up the charts you had one or two sort of near miss hits kind of yeah, thing yeah. and i wonder if that's because there wasn't more of an emphasis uh, made on playing the states or or conquering the states or whatever and that's probably coming from you saying you know I, i'm happy watching my kids grow up i'm making plenty of money off people recording my tunes i don't need to go out and struggle through america opening for somebody yeah yeah well <laughs> again you yeah again you're very you're very right on on that because you do tend to think you know it's like starting all over again but sure. i always missed i i used to go with my brother I used to go out and play with my brother on a saturday night because he played organ he played an organ in the mm. band and uh he's always had a band because but you know he's in my band with me when um you know when yeah. we were kids when we were young so when i turned professional he stayed, he got married, had kids, and uh, he used to play function gigs, you know? Funny, he would do Beatles medleys and that kind of stuff. I often used to go out with him, and when he didn't have a drummer, I used to play the drums. So he'd phone me and say, oh, because uh, when, when Mick, Mick Avery was thrown out of the kinks and Bob Henrik moved into, <laughs> he moved into the drums, Mick joined my brother's band and used to do functions every Saturday night. Really? And then and then Mick would go out and uh, play uh, play golf. He'd go to Spain or somewhere and play golf with his okay. friends. And my brother used to phone me and say, "Rusk, are you doing anything next Saturday? No. Yeah. Uh, can you play drums for us?" And I, I used to say to him, "Can can you tell Mick to leave the drum set up on the van? <laughs> and I don't want to set them up." 
And I used to, I used to really enjoy it. I used to go play the drums. Uh, when he had a drummer, sometimes Bob Henry used to do it, or I had other friends that did uh, did these gigs, and I I used to play guitar and. Uh-huh. You know that that kept my my chops up, as they say. You know, but um, yeah. I always missed okay. playing. I, as I said, I played this uh, last year. I did uh, March. I played last March. Did about ten shows, and it was magic because everybody comes out and they're shouting for. And I'm doing all these tunes. I'm doing them because I hadn't rehearsed them. They're shouting out for things like concrete and clay. They're shouting uh-huh. out for things like Santana winning did and night that I did myself yeah. and stuff and. And because I never rehearsed them with the band, and I'm just doing them with me and the, and the guitar, it's you know you realise what you've missed. It's so crazy, yeah. and you realise that it is a gift that you have. And and my dad used to say to me, you know, if you have a gift, it's almost there's something wrong about not using this. Almost something uh, sort of uh, you know. And I, yeah. I I can see that now as I'm getting older. So yeah. think, oh wow. I love playing, and I'm doing a tour. Yeah. I'm going to do a, I'm going next year. I'm I'm doing a tour of England again, and I'm doing a tour of Germany because there's two promote two two separate promoters getting me um two tours. Nice. So um and I've done an album. Wow. I'm always working. I'm always in the studio. Sure. I'm still working. Well, I believe it. I'm every day. I'm yeah, in the studio writing because it's like uh it's like a nice illness, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I wonder, um, you know, I know people don't like to answer questions about what their favorite songs are or anything like that, but what do you this, what do you suppose makes your talent stand above so many other people? You know, is there a particular thing that you've, that you've realized is your, your voice specific to you that people like? It's a couple of elements, again. It, it's a matter of, being able to speak to people with words yeah. and, you know, uh, communication. You've got to communicate somehow. You've got to communicate. So, and I believe this is something I thought about in the last sort of 20 years, you know, that you, we aren't separate from each other. We think we're separate from each other. And this is a big problem with the, with the world, that we think we're separate yeah. from each other. When you go through... You speak to a French person when they could speak English and whatever, or you get through the language barrier, and they start talking about their lives, and you think, God, it's just just like me, you know. They are their history, their culture, and they are their language, they are their pain and their pleasure, and they are all that stuff. And so is it. They are their love. They're falling in and out of love, and so am I. So is the guy in Africa. 
And so yeah. is the guy in Russia. We're not separate from each other. So if you can say something that means a lot to you about, I don't know, about losing love, about having love, mm. about losing somebody, about or touching that nerve, and it means something mm -hmm. to you, it's going to mean something to a lot of people. If you can say it in yeah. a, try and say it in a, a new way, um, you realize that uh, it is communicating. I'm an enthusiast as well. I used to listen to everything. Mm -hmm. I love... Uh, I love so much, so many different styles. I play all sorts of different styles on the piano. You know, I play stride piano, and I play all, I play really? all the standards. Night and day, you are the one, only you beneath all this stuff. <laughs> I'm doing it all the time. You know, people come and say, I didn't know you could play that stuff, but mm -hmm. I can, and I always did. And um, yeah, I like Cole Porter. I like Rachmaninoff. You know what I'm saying? But I also like uh, Big Bill Brunzi, and I like uh, yeah, uh, yeah. All these, you know, all this stuff. I like Burt Bacharach. I went to see Burt Bacharach this time last year over in London. And you realize you listen to, if you are an enthusiast, you listen to, uh -huh. you listen to the way people write. And you see, oh, yeah, yeah, there, are, there aren't any rules, but there's some common things. There are hooks in the songs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. And they repeat the hooks. And, you know, it's so obvious. Yeah. And I listen to people send me their songs. And I say, yeah, but there's no hooks. You yeah. know. And it takes too long before you get to the chorus. You know what I'm saying? It's so yeah. obvious. And uh, yeah, these these the things, bad. you know. So I, because I'm an enthusiast, I listen to I listen to stuff, and uh, I'm I still feel like a 16 year old, John. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah, I believe yeah, it. yeah. You know, you say in there, you were saying how um, it, the first thing you mentioned before the hooks was that you feel like if you can say something or communicate something that's kind of a universal feeling. I find it interesting when people say that because I'm, I personally am not that big of a lyrics person. I'm not, I'm more of a feel, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Groove. Yeah. I like, that's why I say I like the, I, I related to what you were saying about the hooks. That's where I come in. And then, you know, maybe years later I'm paying it. Oh, is that what that song was saying all along? You know? Yeah. And, and I wonder if you place a greater emphasis on one or the other, because something like Since You've Been Gone, the the subject matter of the lyrics is actually quite sad, you know? This guy having a really hard time. But I never really wrote a happy, happy... I never wrote a happy song then, John. That's probably true. The first happy song, I, a guy in Germany, I was doing an interview in Germany 10 years ago, and the guy said to me, why do you, why do you always... Why do you always write uh, blues songs? And I'm thinking, I don't write blues. Just a second, I don't write blues. But he was talking about the lyrics. Uh -huh, it, uh -huh. That's what I thought. I thought later, I thought, I don't write blues songs, except for Liar, which was a kind of a blues tune. And um, yeah, it's it the lyrics. The lyrics are blues. They're all sad. And yeah. the, actually, Since You've Been Gone, was everything in that was, was me. That was me talking. Yeah. And you see, really? that's universal. Everybody... I get the same yeah. old dreams, same time every night, fall to the ground and I wake up.
I used to do that all the time as a kid, and a lot of people do. And you realize, people say, that happened to me. That happens to me. Yeah. I, you know, fall, I fall to the ground, yeah. bang, and wake up. So I get out of bed, because you start to panic, and I jump out of bed, uh-huh. and, uh, you know, these four walls are closing. Do you know, when you say lyrics, I heard somebody say, lyrics mean more to girls than guys, and I think it's probably true. Ooh, that might be true, yeah. I've heard that's true. People have said it to me. Uh-huh. However... If you listen to, you listen to, I don't know, you listen to, that's all right, mama, that's all right for you. Uh-huh. That's all. <laughs> it's the sound of that performance of him screaming. Yeah. And you listen to the sound, and subliminally, you know what he's saying. That's all right, mama. That's yeah. all right for you. That's all right, mama. Any way you do. You take that in just by listening to his performance and the feel, as you say, the feel of it. But I think yeah. you take in the lyrics. As well, you take yeah. in those lyrics. You either, if you see me walking down the street and I start to cry, just hear him cry at that moment when you, with that sound. Yeah, that's a Burt yeah. Bacharach, I know, and Hal David. But you know, you listen to that Great kind sound. of thing. That touches me, and I think. Yeah. And I think that's the. I don't know. All I'm saying is this is what how I feel about it. You know. Well, yeah. I mean, I think you know this is an age-old question, but I think we've. We're sort of hitting on what a, I imagine the conclusion a lot of people have come to is that it's just it's a combination of a bunch of different things. It's a combination of the right words said at the right time with the right feel, yeah. and then repeated often enough to <laughs> stick in your brain. That's yeah. really that's probably what a good song. You know, is, you've you got know? it. I think you've got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Interesting. I just I just solved this problem for the whole world. Bro. Yeah, you've got it. You go and get one. yourself you a publishing deal. <laughs> I should. I should. <laughs> Great. Oh, um, okay, so your your solo career trudges along basically from about the mid seventies to the mid eighties, and yeah. all again all, during this time. This is also the height of people doing your songs. Mm. Are you getting frustrated at all that your solo material is not landing to the same degree that people's versions of your songs are landing, or are you? Is this sort of a side project for you to do to keep you interested? While people, you know, record your stuff, how well, I always, I, <laughs> I always had a publishing deal, you know. So I mean, I had to. Uh-huh. I always had a deal. So I mean, basically, okay. usually, they wanted you to write twenty songs a year. So you were contracted, you know, to uh, to write twenty songs a year. But that was nothing for me. I could do that easily. So I was doing that, and I was also writing for myself. I was always hoping that one of these tunes would sort of be commercial enough. But, uh, you know, I did I did an album. I started to do an album with Ringo Starr years ago, and Ringo said, where are all the love songs? When you recall for yourself, you don't do enough love songs. Interesting. And I didn't. I was always writing about things that mean something to me, like I was writing about other stuff and all that, you know, and uh, where, you know, if you cut down the law of averages... You know, and write more love songs. You probably appeal to more people. But I was hoping that the record company just once would say, "Would you come and support your album?" But they never did. 
They never, they never got in touch with me ever. I never went to the states and supported an album that I recorded, wow. ever. Jeez. And I was never invited. The only time was 1976 when I first left Argent. I always thought they were mad at me for leaving Argent, and so they they thought, right, you've, we've got you on a leaving member, we've got you on a leaving members clause, and and that was it. And so when I did my second album, which was winning, when you know it was just crazy because Santana. The first single, my first single from that album was Since You've Been Gone, which didn't see the light of day. Then Head East had a small hit with it. Rainbow had a big hit with it uh, all over the place. Uh, not so much in the States, but they had a hit with it in the States. Um, and that was in the charts three times by uh, Head East. Cherry, yeah. Mary, Curry, they got it in the charts too, didn't they? And yeah. Um, yeah. Over here it was recorded lots of times by different people. The second single I had from that album was Winning, which Santana did four years later. Yeah. Roger Daltrey did Just a Dream Away, that was in the film McVicar, with Roger singing it. Well, I, I recorded that. Bay City Rollers did Are You Cuckoo that I did on that That's album. a great track. I mean, I was so I was a, yeah I was a little frustrated, but I never felt supported in my in my uh, solo career by the record company ever. Even when I did a change to EMI, 
which they were more popular albums, actually, the EMI albums. Um, okay. Uh, they were more, I think they sold more, and they were more popular in Europe. I was still never invited to to, to tour it, you know. That is weird. I think to tour, I think weird. it's a lot to do with, John, I think it's a lot to do with getting older. As you're getting older, that was in the 80s, you know, and you, you know they uh-huh. they have their signings, these guys, heads of A&R, they have their signings, and they have a certain budget, and they don't want to waste it on someone that's getting older. They want to waste it on somebody yeah. that's young, their own, you know, their own age group and their, yeah, uh, sure. the people that they've signed. And, yeah, I could understand it. I could understand that. Yeah. You know. And if they're getting what they want from you, which is successful songs one way or the other, yeah. you're kind of like Rapunzel, you know? You've got this beautiful thing, <laughs> but we're going to keep you locked in the, in, the, in the dungeon of the castle because, you know, we don't want anyone to take it away or... Yeah. We, we're going to keep it for ourselves. Yeah, that's true. Still the best yeah. feeling in the world, strange enough. The best feeling, I'm thinking about it this afternoon, is finishing a gig, doing a gig and finishing a gig. It's the most wonderful thing, you know. Really? Yeah. It's the, it's the best feeling. I've just been watching Federer win Wimbledon, you know, and I'm watching uh-huh. him walking around, and I was sort of comparing it to, uh, <laughs> to sort of finishing a good gig, you know, and um, yeah. especially now because people, you know, when you do a show now, they're singing all the songs, you know, and I guess a lot of people look and think, well, who is he? Who is he? Why is he doing that song from Kiss? Why is he doing that song from Santana? You know, when when I recorded <laughs> no them first, idea. you know. But the older people, you know, they all sort of appreciate it, and it's so moving. And as you get older, it, one appreciates it, appreciates it a lot more than when you're young. You know, you don't know what you've yeah. got till you lose it, kind of thing. You know. Very true. Yeah. You know? It's a shame for somebody as successful as you who didn't get to have that sensation of the post gig elation more often. That's yeah, really I mean, it, it is wonderful. I've had it, I've had it, you know, I've had it a lot at gigs in Germany and places like that, you know, when you walk yeah. on and, you know, and there's such an amazing, amazing feeling. And that's why it's pretty hard sometimes to sleep in a strange hotel room because you have that, that kind of uh, adrenaline flow, you know, serotonin sure. and endorphin rush that you get, you know, you yeah. get back to the hotel, you can't sleep, you know, and that's, yeah. that's a big problem. You may find this interesting. I interviewed uh, Ian Anderson from General yeah. Toll, and um, I asked him, you know, he's been really successful too. And so I said, you know, if it, if it were all to go away, what indulgence that your success has brought you would you miss the very most? And you saying this reminded me of what he said. His favorite thing after a gig is to go back to the hotel, take off all of his clothes, and lay on the bed and watch the news with a cold beer. I, <laughs> I thought, that, first of all, it's kind of a funny uh, visual, but that's really interesting information coming from someone who's you know been a rock star for fifty years or something. You know that's true. So that's he, true, that's, John. That's yeah. His thing. <laughs> Do you know? Isn't that interesting? This is this is what I was saying about us being, you know, not separate from each other. I do the same yeah. thing. You know, the same thing. You really? know, I think yeah, the same stuff. You lay on the bed, you feel so good. Yeah. You're you're drained, uh-huh. and you have a beer, which brings you up yeah. again, and you oh, it's magic. And and you go down for breakfast next day with the band. And you sit having breakfast for an hour and a half, just telling stories to the band, you know, uh-huh. and they're telling you their stories, and you're crying with laughter. Uh, and you say, oh, why can't we have more of this, you know? Um, but, yeah. um, but I've seen my kids grow, John. I've watched them develop. You and, yeah. uh, you know, you've got to sacrifice one. I mean, Roger, I, look, I think going back to Roger Daltrey, I mean, Roger Daltrey mm-hmm. just likes to be on the road, and uh, that's, that's yeah. fine, you know, and he's given his life to it, you know. 
yeah. given his life to it, and like most yeah. people do. Yeah, it's true. I've given my um, life to I've given my life to music. So I've always been in the studio and I've always played the piano, guitar, and written songs. So I've always done it every day, you know, for hours. Yeah. Mm. I take it at this point you have a studio in your home, and you yeah, can just go yeah, down I've had in a, it and tinker yeah. around all day. Yeah, yeah. I, I was in there today. I was in there today at uh, quarter to six this morning, and I came oh, out at wow. uh, came out uh, came out to watch the tennis and. Um, uh huh. I've got to go in there to turn off my equipment, actually. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So then, uh, I mean, I want to re- I want to ask you about a bunch of your songs, but before we do that, let's fi- let's finish your solo career. So around the mid '80s, it sounds like it kind of ends or drops off. Is that a record label set dropping you, or is that you saying I'm not really gonna, I don't I'm not interested in doing this anymore? What motivates it kind of coming to an end, or at least slowing way down? Yeah, do you know, I hadn't really thought about this. Yeah, uh, e- uh, CBS dropped me. Uh, I went to EMI, which, to be truthful, I always had a manager, and then suddenly I didn't have a manager. In the oh. in uh, That was 87. I didn't have a manager. I never had another manager. And, you know, the punk thing had happened really big, and the whole thing, and there's a lot of young kids yeah. coming through, and you tend to think to yourself, well, you know, are they gonna, they're not going to want to see me, are they? You know what I mean? Right. You know, with these young guys coming through and yeah. stuff, you know. And people used to say in the 60s and 70s, oh, 25, John Lennon said, I'm not going to be singing Hard Day's Night when I'm 30. Well, he probably uh, wasn't, actually, as it happens. But uh, uh, he was still singing when he, got, when he was sure. older and stuff like that. Um, and you've obviously now the... Uh, the original rock and rollers are in their seventies. You know what I mean, and yeah, uh, they're I all do. still doing it. And you realise if you're fit, I'm really fit. I run every day. I could, I could have done it. I look back and I say I could have done it more. You know, because when the kids, when your kids become teenagers, you know, you can get out. They've got their own lives and stuff. And you know, you, you, you know. Uh, well, I'm doing it now, John. <laughs> Strange. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Now's the time. Yeah, I love okay. it. I love it. I think while you're Good. doing it, I heard somebody say, it's not how you begin, it's how you end. <laughs> Good. So you're revving up here for what time you have left. Yeah, um, I wanna, yeah, okay, I want to cool. do, do not much more of it if I can. Yeah, I want to do I know that people like Tony Bennett are still out there doing it, you know. Oh, he's yeah. Got, he's got cool. years on me, so uh, I'm saying to myself, uh, I did a gig two weeks ago at the O2. Oh, really? Yeah, with Richie Blackmore, funnily enough. Oh, because Richie really? Blackmore and Rainbow were playing at the O2 in London, and I got a I got a message from Richie and just said, "Do you, would, do you fancy being my uh, fancy being my guest star, my guest star?" No way. On the show, just to do since you've been gone, and um, yeah, oh, it was strange. It was really strange. I got to the sound check, and they were still rehearsing. I think they were under rehearsed, so they were still rehearsing, mm. and I didn't have the heart to say to him. You know, uh, now can we rehearse since you've been gone, you know? And I walked on the stage, and he looked at me, and he went, oh, since you've been gone. Um, we only start from the middle. You start from the middle, and he goes, if you want me back, baby, I'm here whenever you want. Da, da, da. Uh-huh. And he said, that's it. I said, that's it? He said, yeah. I said, he said, that's it. And then you come on. And I said, well, how about the guitar solo? He said, oh, I don't do a guitar solo because it's in a major key. And I don't like playing in major keys. I prefer minor keys. So anyway, as it happens, I went on. And we, still, uh, we did do a chorus after that, but it started, they only do like um, 
a minute, uh, two minutes, two minutes of the song. Really? Brought you out as a special guest to do two minutes. Part came of on, the song, there was, there and was, then you went back up. Yeah, that there was, was it was fourteen and a half thousand people, and they were a great crowd. It gave us a great reception, and we did basically did the. Uh, I walked on, uh, and they were doing. If you want me back, baby, I'm here. The middle middle part. Then we uh-huh, went into uh-huh. the. Uh, uh, we went into the last chorus. Did the last chorus and finished, and that was it. I went off. I went home. <laughs> came home. <laughs> so weird. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's weird. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. I, I was reading, well, it must be an old, it was an older interview now, but at the time, whoever was doing the interview with you, you had told him that you had never even met Richie Blackmore. That's the first time. So this was the first time. Yeah, that's two weeks ago, yeah. Isn't that weird? Never met that's him. weird. And and yet we were in the same band years ago when I was 15. I told him, I said, Richie, uh, he remem- obviously remembered the band, yeah. I said, uh, this is, there was an English band called The Outlaws. This was before, this is pre-Beatles. They were called The Outlaws. And I used to do gigs with them because their guitar player always let them down, you know. And uh-huh. uh, they used to phone me and say, Russ, can you play guitar for us? Because Bill's doing it or Bill's doing that. So uh, I said, yeah. And I learned the tunes and I used to go out with them and do their gigs. And then, then they wanted me in the band. And they were produced by a, a, a legend, a guy called Joe Meek in London. Uh-huh. And the manager came and picked me. The manager said to me, "Would you do?" Uh, it was great. I wasn't a professional musician then, you know. The manager said, yeah. "Would you? Uh, can you do a session for the Outlaws?" And I said, "Yeah, Joe Meek's studio." And I thought, "Oh, this is great." Yeah. He said, "I'll come and pick you up." He picked me up in a big American car from London and took me back into London. <laughs> and I there was no one else there, just me, an amplifier, and a guitar, and Joe Meek. And uh, I played this. He said, "Can you play something?" I played something and uh, played "Trambone" that Chet Atkins uh, originally did. And uh, Mel, it's a Mel Travis tune, I think. And um, Joe Meek came out and said, "Yeah, it's fine. It's fine." You know. And this, the manager said to me, "You've got the job in the Outlaws." And I said, "I don't want it." Yeah. Right. And he said, "Why are you wasting my time, Yak?" He said, "I thought you'd want it. I thought you'd want to be in the Outlaws." But I was in a band. I said with my brother. With Bob Henry, uh, you know, I was always in a band yeah. with Bob. With Bob Henry, uh, Bernie Benson, Buster Meikle from Unit 4 Plus. We've been in a band for years, and we were very popular for where we were. So I wanted to be in that band. Because basically, that was my band. That was my band, yeah. you know, and right. I wanted to be in that band. Sure. Strange. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> so here's a, here's a specific question. What... So... You have all these songs that most people know. I wouldn't say there's not, I don't know that too many of them are necessarily standards, you know, Mm. but they've been popular enough, Mm. you know, since you've been gone, New York Groove, Mm. I know there's something going on, all these great tracks that people Mm. know, but they're not, you know, what one is, would you say is your biggest moneymaker at this point? Is it New York Groove? But it, yeah, I mean that's been yeah, I mean that has been really good because it's had a you know a lot of synchronizations that that one um, yeah. yeah that's been really good. I've noticed I've just had the PRS has just come in and somebody's looked at it and it said oh your biggest earner at the moment is uh, is um, you can do magic by America. I said if I can't feel it, then how could it be? No 
that's the biggest one at the moment. That's the uh, interesting. Um, yeah. I wonder why. I don't know. I don't know. But the biggest, yeah. apparently, the biggest burner is the song that I wrote for Hot Chocolate called So You and Again. Just admit one mistake that can be hard to take. I know we've made them fall, but only fools come back. Like uh, it's a kind of uh, it was number one here in Europe. It did really, really well, but uh, it's a kind of a more like a soul tune. It was was a soul yeah. tune really. Yeah. Mm. It was a blue, like oh, a blue-eyed soul. Hmm? They were a great band, and you. I think I read in a story on that you were. I mean, you weren't setting out to bo- to write a soul tri- tune. You were just writing a song, and whoever was it, Mickey Most. Yeah, you got it. it. Yeah, said, you got it. Yeah. Um, you know, this belongs in soul this is an r&b track yeah, yeah well i took that song i did it for myself because i still had a deal then with cbs oh, that, you was did. Se- that was 77 yeah i still had a deal i took it i took it to morris oberstein american who lived who was uh head of cbs then and they were in soho square and i took it i took it as a demo and i said i think i've got a hit here morris morris mm. and he listened to it and he said you know he said yeah it's a good song it's a good song but you know uh that's for, a, that's for a black band. <laughs> like that, you know, and he was right, actually. And I thought, well, if the, if the head of the record company doesn't see it, what's the point, you know? Yeah, yeah, no kidding. You know, oh, so, uh, yeah. Huh. Wow, I wonder what's going on with America. You know, I love that song, and I hadn't heard it in years. And getting ready to talk to you, I was listening to some a bunch of your, you know, versions of your songs over again just to get refreshed, and, I must have played that one on YouTube six or seven times in a row. It was just so good to hear that American no, that's song brilliant. again. I love that's, that one. That's yeah. brilliant. <laughs> yeah, so that's true. I got, yeah. uh, I, gotta, I gotta apologize because I know a lot of your songs. I was less familiar with your solo out, uh, your at solo output. Yeah, yeah. And so I've been, I've been listening to it a lot lately to get ready to talk to you, and I really like it. In fact, I bought, your, I bought the anthology album off Amazon. It hasn't arrived yet, but oh, I right, bought that recently. Really. I was really, <laughs> oh, I thought, let's lovely. start here. And uh, I've listened to it on Spotify a couple of times, and I think it's so great, so I wanted my own copy. Anyway, oh, thanks, um, so forgive me if I ask you about some of these songs, and because some of, uh, not always were you writing for someone. It was more, a lot of the time, probably half, if not more of the time, it was someone covering you and just having a lot of success with one of your songs. 
That's exactly right. I was always writing for myself, uh, except for America. Yeah. I was always, okay. I, I, except for New York Groove, too. I wrote that for the band, uh, the band that had the hit with it in England. I wrote that in the studio with the band in the studio. My friend's father had a de- uh, had a studio. I did all my demos there in a place called Barnet, and um, uh, all my, yeah, they used to have a sixteen track and they had a twenty four track analog uh, desk. And uh, I took this little band in. They were sixteen years old, and all I had was uh, a title, which was New York Groove. I had a super vamper harmonica. And I wanted to do a Bo Diddley beat, you know, like a kind of, uh, you pretty thing, don't you, gunk, don't you, let me buy you wedding ring, you know, jink, 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 jink. Yeah, like yeah. a not fade away. I'm going to tell you how it's going to be, dance, 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 because yeah. you don't hear that feel that often. And I thought it'd be great for this little band to do uh, to do something like a Bo Diddley beat, which is what, you know, and I put a harp, a harmonica on that. Uh, and went in the studio and did it. And it, it, to me, that lyric it just—it was so easy to write. You know, I had this whole concept in my head, and we—we we sort of uh, did the chorus first, and then just just made up the uh, just made up the verse. I went in, you know, and I had this idea of going to New York as we used to go to New York, and I hadn't been there for a couple of years, and uh, and I was thinking about, you know, sometimes. The lovely record company would uh, give you a, a, a limo for the for the week or something like that, you know. Uh-huh. And I'm doing uh-huh. it in the back of a Cadillac with a lady by my side. Tell you where I'll be. Stop at third and forty-three. Dancing to the night. It's gonna be ecstasy. This, it was the first rap, wasn't it? Here yeah. I am again in the city. <laughs> right. Ding, 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 ding. With a fist full of dust. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. Great. yeah. Wow. When someone covers you, do you is it Typically, um, or you write for them or whatever, is it is it understood that this song is going to be a single? Or do you care if it ends up on an album? Or are there expectations when people record your stuff that, you know, it's going to go somewhere? Yeah, usually, strange enough, usually, because, because um, they're pretty commercial tunes with choruses, they usually uh-huh. are singles, and that's what that's used what to I happen. Wondered. Yeah, that's what used to happen, and... Uh, you know, when you hear it's a buzz, you know, that used to be a buzz. It wasn't quite the buzz of doing a show, but when your publisher or your record company would phone or your manager would phone and say, so-and-so, hot chocolate have, have cut your, have cut this song and, 
uh, Richie Blackmore and Rainbow have cut that one. The Pointer Sisters have, yeah, the Pointer Sisters have just done this tune with Richard Perry. And... So just done this song. It used to be such a buzz, you know. Yeah. That was always a buzz. So I didn't mind as long as as long as people were hearing the song and um, and uh, yeah, that was always that was great. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to ask you about a few of your songs. And like I said earlier, forgive me if I. You That's know, okay. I don't, That's okay. It sounds like most of them are going to be covers, but maybe there's some story and that you would remember relating to your version or their version or whatever. Yeah. I do think it's really interesting that you wrote for both ABBA ladies at around the same time. And both those songs are amazing. I mean, I think I have the timeline right on this. I know there's something going on. Frida, I remember that song so well as a kid. That was another one I loved. And then Can't Shake Loose by Agnetha. Yeah, uh, it's pronounced Agnetha. Agnetha. Agnetha Fultzkog, yeah. Why were you brought in? Were, they, were those covers? Did they bring you in specifically to write for both ABBA women separately at the same time? What? How did that work? Uh, I, as I said, I was contracted, always contracted to write. So um, I was always going into my this studio uh, 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 at Barnet. Actually, they changed they changed studios and they moved to uh, Wood Green. But I had the same situation with them. I could go in. And get get very good rates, and so I, you know, they were just. I remember having, with uh, I know there's something going on. I recorded that with the first Lindrum. Do you remember the Lindrum, the first yeah, computer? Sure. Uh-huh. The, uh, uh-huh. The, yeah, 
I I had probably I didn't know about this the first one here, but I certainly I saw Stevie Wonder playing one on the TV. Mm. I found out what it was and I ordered one and uh, I used to use it for my demos. And I remember when the first gated reverbs came out. Nick Kinsey, who was the engineer in the studio, I programmed the go go and he put a gated reverb on this kick and the snare and it sounded so and it was really inspiring you know it went down 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 like that and i said god nick can we put this down and uh, i had a guitar in my hands and um recorded digga digga doom doom and you know, I just flew with that one. It took about an hour. Uh, I put in a synth after it and stuff, and the demo was really strong. The demo sounded, re- but I sounded like a girl on it as well. So, so um, that's probably why she recorded it. But it did. Sa- it okay. sounded like a strong song, and um, Phil Collins produced that. Yeah. talking about the drum sound the pattern that you had just come up with being so essential to inspire you to write it yeah how did you feel because the i mean to me the selling point of that song the verse the frida version is the power of phil's drums on that did you were you okay with that did you feel like that overwhelmed something that you had done uh within the song that you liked better do you ever do you care even do you feel no you know, no no i mean it's or protective of your tune no 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 no, okay. it, it's his uh, it's his interpretation um, because it sounded to me they've used it sounds like they've used a reverb on it, but I bet they mic'd up the room for that. It sounds to me as though they mic'd up the room because it, it's very very big sound, but it sounds like it's also been uh, uh, reverbed as well to me. Okay. But um, uh, yeah, strangely enough, there's a little side story to this. You know, last two years ago she released uh, a limited edition of that album which was called Something's Going On wasn't it the album was uh-huh, called Something's uh-huh. Going On and somebody I didn't, I'd never seen it but my friend in, I was in Dubai and a friend of mine out there had had the album and uh, he said you see she's put a message on this limited edition and she signed it for me and all that and the, uh, and the message on this said uh, she thanks everybody on the on the sleeve notes and she said the only regret I have with this album is that I didn't ask Russ Ballard to write me more songs. Really? Yeah, that's that's the message that's actually on the album. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would imagine a lot of people feel that way, uh, considering yeah. how good you are. It's like, <laughs> let's get more Russ Ballard. 
Right. I'm still yeah. doing. I'm still doing it. If, if people want to ask me, I'll try to do it again. Good. You know what? Uh, that brings up another question I had for you. Do you feel like songwriters have a window? Do you feel like because you know most? Uh, yeah. Let's be honest. A lot of acts yeah. have high points to their career, yeah. and then from then on, they're sort of chasing something. Do you feel like songwriting is the same? Well, uh, if you look, yeah, what you're saying is right because uh, most people have their time, don't they? Yeah. It's very seldom that um, that people come. I mean, Sinatra came back again. He wasn't a songwriter, but he came back in his career for a second right. time. He had a yeah. he had a wilderness period, didn't he? But um, I don't know yeah. songwriting. Maybe maybe when you're young, maybe you have those emotions flying through you, and you feel more strongly mm-hmm. about those emotions, and maybe they do they do reach other people, and maybe you don't feel as strongly. But I. All I know is I'm finding things about myself now mm-hmm. I didn't know I didn't know existed. That's why I still love to do it. I go in there and I'm writing songs in different ways, um, finding different ways to do it. You know, when you're forever yeah. learning when you go into the studio, forever yeah. learning. You know, there's technology to learn as well on top of it. True. Yeah. And so uh, okay. I, I I love it. Good. Uh, okay, a couple more tracks. I did it for love by Night Ranger. I really like Night Ranger and that song. Every night that I held you made heaven from hell, yeah. I did it for love. Like the change of the season, you grew cold. For that reason, I did it for love. Probably a cover, I'm guessing. I, I well, I did it. Yeah, I, I, I did. I just did that as a, I did that as a tune. The demo again. The demo was really good. The demo was, uh, uh, the demo was really good. Um, sadly, I, I wouldn't know where to put my hands on these demos now. But uh, it was very good. <laughs> That's too bad. Yeah, and Jack Blades was staying with us. Do you remember Jack Blades from Night Ranger? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. So Jack, uh-huh. Jack was staying with us with his um. I don't know. I think he came over to write with us. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, we did write a song together. He stayed with Molly, his wife, and uh, but he's what a great guy. He he turned out to be, and I think I'd already written that for them. I think I'd written for that tune huh. for them. <laughs> I can't remember now. It's a long time That's ago. That's okay. That's okay. I've always liked them. They were my very first concert when I was, I think, ten or eleven years old. Yeah. Um, just solid meat and potatoes melodic rock. Yeah. You know? I don't know yeah. what more you could want. I really like them. Yeah. Uh, okay. Now, we were talking about, we talked a lot about Roger Daltrey. One of his songs that I really like is Hearts of Fire. You are the son of 64. 
think about who doesn't love Roger Daltrey, but if the if the guy could write his own music, I wonder I wonder how different his career would be. You know, he's as great a talent as he is. In some ways, it seems like he's sort of reliant on other people to feed him things to interpret. You know, he, yeah. I had uh, Gerard McMahon on here. I don't know if you know who he is, but he uh, did a lot of work with Roger Daltrey too, and. I uh, I don't know. On the one hand, he gets to partner with great people like you. On the other hand, he is relies on people like you to you know give him something to do. You know what I mean? Am I off base on that? No, you're absolutely right. Uh, Roger said to yeah. me a couple of years ago on a plane. He said, "I want to work as much as I possibly can now." Yeah. And I said, "Why? Yeah. Why do you feel like?" That? He said, "Because you've got less time to do it." Yeah. And he said it to yeah. another friend of mine because. Uh, I know he wanted to get the uh, the Teenage Cancer Band back together to sort of like do gigs and things, but he loves he loves to work. He loves to be out yeah. there doing it, you know, and um, he loves to sing. Um, I saw him at Greg Lake's funeral. That's the last time I saw him actually, and um, he was talking about the Stones album. He said, "Have you heard the Stones album?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "It sounded." I thought I think it sounds really good. Da 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 da. We're talking about that stuff, and I said that uh, this is what I said to you, didn't I? And I said to him about six years ago. I said oh, maybe I shouldn't say this because it's still something that would be really good. You should do a history of blues album. Ooh. You should do a history of blues. And he said, Well, what do you yeah. mean? And uh, I said, Well, you know, you start with. <laughs> I'm telling this. I should never tell anyone. You want I'll cut but, it out but, if you want but, me but, to. No, no. As I'm getting old, as I'm getting older, you know, I mean, I would never get it yeah. together now. I don't think, Pro- probably, but it's a great. I put down the idea of it. I put down the beginning yeah. of it. I said, like, you start from like the cotton fields. You start from the chain gang yeah. and whatever. And you hear, you know, then suddenly you hear this, this voice go. <laughs> and Dorchus yes. becomes fading into the scene, and he sings his blues, and gradually, and it goes from the it goes from the early days and the whole history of and you know and I said then you could do, and you do a you do a duet with Bonnie Raitt, you do a duet with Van yeah. Morrison throughout the album, and you know and this kind yeah. of stuff. I said you could have a huge album, Roger. Yeah. And he said, well, who's going to write the words, though? Who's going to write the words? I said, well, I, I was just about to say, I, I can't even, well, I could do that, he said. But the trouble is, I, I just know it would never get done. That's too bad. I would think people like you, this is a genius idea. I would think people like Bonnie Raitt and everyone else would rally around getting to work on an album like that. He would have a great Roger album, Daltrey. you know. And if it, they did and, it with Santana, why wouldn't they do it with Roger Daltrey? Yeah. Exactly, they you would know? do it. They would do it. It'd have a huge album, you know. And I've yeah. said this. I've said this to him twice now. I said it years ago, five years, six years ago to him, and I said it to Greg's late. I said, didn't I say? I said you were to do a history of blues, and he just looked at me, and um, I don't think he remembered me even saying it, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that's yeah. too bad. That's a missed opportunity, right there. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes well, a rock I singer, know. I think, rather than rather than a, oh, a soul or a blues singer. I think you need somebody like an icon, an iconic. I, I mean, Roger would be perfect for it. I think. Yeah. But there too. you go. Especially now that his voice is older and more weathered, he could he could really kind of growl some of those blues tunes. He would. Tunes. That he would. would be really good. He would. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I could keep you for hours to talk about your song. So instead, let's. I want to. 
close it out with a couple of questions that I ask pretty much everybody. Yeah. Um, number one, if you have any regrets, I want to know if there's any decision you made along the way. And we talked about, you know, it's unfortunate that you didn't get the tour more in the States and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. is there something you particularly did, a decision you made that altered things in a way that you wish they hadn't? And then secondly, I just want to know what your tastiest memory is. The I can't believe that happened to me memory. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, this um Yeah. Uh I guess I have regrets, but too few to mention, John. Okay, good. Good. <laughs> That's great. Good for you. Uh yeah, uh, really. Um I guess I would like to have played more because I mean that was such a big part. Uh Yeah. And I'm also a bit of a ham as well, so I mean, I suppose. Mm. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> uh, as far as the other things, I've had a few really nice things actually, uh, like playing all the places that I ever, you know, places you hear about when you're really young. I played when I was 13. I played the Festival Hall in London with my band because we won a competition, and part of it was to play at the Festival Hall. And to me, we, we were then playing at youth clubs and now, you know, in schools and places like that. And suddenly we were at Festival Hall, we played the Albert Hall. Um, Played uh, places like um, Carnegie Hall. We played there with the Doobies. Sure. Played with Roger. I played and did my own songs as well at um, the Gardens. Played uh-huh. there, and that was good with Roger. Um, Madison Square Gardens, and um, I tell you what's lovely now. You know, sort of going, going, knowing pe- people that do come to see you. It's kind of appreciate. You know. Uh, People singing, singing my songs when you go out there. Yeah. And you get to the chorus and you say, what is that? Wow, they're singing this chorus. And wow, uh-huh. they're singing the next chorus to the next song as well. They know these, you know. Yeah. And I thought, you know, that this hasn't been a hit, but they know all these songs. And um, that's a real buzz. Good. Good. And standing up at the end of the show, that is lovely. When you see the crowd stand up and you think, well, that is lovely, you know. Yeah, I can imagine. It's so moving. It's, and so it's moving. unfortunate you haven't had that experience more often in your life, but yeah. at least you're getting it now. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you've written, you've left behind a canon of music that means a lot to a lot of people. I mean, that's got to feel good. So. Yeah, it's nice to leave something. It's nice to have something to leave yeah. behind. You know, um, sure, I think that is, sure. the, you know, because I heard somebody say, which is, I think I read it actually. Um, it might not seem important what you do, but it's important that you do it, and uh-huh. that and that humans. If what do you leave behind? If you don't leave behind either really good vibes, or you leave, you see the thing you leave behind is more important than what you know than what you are, yeah. because you know when you are, you're basically as human beings. We are just yeah. we're dust. We're, you know, yeah. uh, we're born like that, and we, that's how we die. But it's what you leave behind stays. Very and true. that goes with Very love. True. That goes. That goes with love. That goes with good vibes. That goes with uh, making people happy rather than making people miserable. You know. Yeah. And you know yeah. that spirit. I guess we call that spirit. You know. And um, yeah. I think that's important to leave something. I, I'd rather hear people say he was a good guy, wasn't he? You know, he cared. You know. You know, rather than yeah. you know, <laughs> rather than the other way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Well, thanks a lot, Russ, for talking to me. I'm I'm really fascinated by people like you, and I think this is one of the reasons why I started this podcast, because there are people in this world who, at, from a young age, I think, 
sense the calling, like you were talking about it, your, what your dad said, it would be a shame not to utilize your talent. Yeah. And you noticed that from an early age, and you've built a life around that. And so many of us don't do that, or we don't get the opportunity to do it, or we don't know our, enough about ourselves and our own talents in order to follow that path. And so I'm amazed by people like you who have done what you wanted to do your whole life and brought so much joy to people in the process. And uh, so I'm really grateful that you talked to me. No, it's, 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 it's been a pleasure, Joe. It's been a yeah. pleasure. There you have it, Russ Ballard. The guy's a legend. I, I don't know if you guys knew he wrote all those songs, but can you believe they all came from the same person? You may have noticed that at some point in the conversation, sometimes we played his original version of one of his songs, and then sometimes we would play the really successful cover version. It just depended on what made sense in the moment uh, and in the flow of the conversation. Um, I wanted to end it, though, with a couple of very extreme examples of his great music. First up is this Swiss band I'd never heard of before called Stormbringer. This is a song they recorded in 1984 on their one and only album called Feels Like the Real Thing that Russ wrote. This song is killer. Such great, beautiful hard rock. Well, after this, it's a woman named Elkie Brooks. I'd never heard of Elkie Brooks before. Maybe you guys know who she is. It's not really my thing. It's kind of more in the Celine Dion, uh, Barbra Streisand vein, which isn't really my thing, but she does this gorgeous version of a song called No More the Fool in 1987. It's a live thing I found on YouTube. Russ wrote that as well. So I want to show you examples on both extreme ends of the spectrum of just how talented Russ is as a songwriter. He's really amazing. So next week's guest is a female singer who had a lot of success in the early 90s, and she was basically, uh, not discovered, but she was basically brought to the masses by one of my all-time favorite bands in the late 80s. And if you know, regular listeners can probably piece together who some of my all-time favorite bands are. They helped get her um, to a much wider audience. And she tells her story. So you'll have to let me know if you think you know who that is. Now, uh, the business... You, uh, you can find me on uh, Facebook and you can like our page. You can communicate with me on there. Um, you can send me an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. I'm way more involved on Facebook than I am Twitter, but whatever's fine. Um, you can please write us a review. Uh, I don't care how many stars. I just like the reviews. Good to know what we're doing right and what, we're do what we could work on. And please subscribe if you haven't already. And then huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Markiewicz. I wish you'd been here in Nashville with me, Yan. I think you would have liked it. But uh, we'll see you guys next week when we're back, when I'm back anyway, in Denver, home, uh, back to normal. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you all later.
just why I stayed around when all I found was heartache. I believed your every word, didn't know the hurt and pain that you'd make. But why did it take so long? The last now I've seen the light I found the heart to say No more the fool who waits around Waiting for you to break me down Those days are gone now No more No more. 
Amor